Um, so I think this is the Presbyterian one, which, you know, I have some objections about, but whatever. I was a good Lutheran kid. Um, and the reading for today is a little different than normal. Uh, so we'll read a little bit from uh, basically the end of Mark 6 and the beginning of Mark 7. And then we're going to read a little bit from the Christmas story uh, from Luke. So we're going to kind of do Advent by putting those two things together and seeing what we come up with. So the actual texts, uh, to be specific, are Mark 6, 45 through 52. And then we're going to do the, the, some sections of 7. I'll tell you where they are. It's like 1 through 3, 6 through 10, 13 through 16. And then uh, Luke 2, 15 through 20. So here's uh, the end of Mark 6 and the beginning of Mark 7. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and uh, go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, where he sent the multitude, and that while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw them straining at rowing, for the wind was against them. About the fourth watch of night, he came to them, walking on the sea, and would have passed them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And they went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. They were amazed in themselves beyond measure, for they had not understood and marveled, for they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem, when they saw him and the disciples eat bread with, the, uh, uh, with defiled, that is, unwashed hands, they found fault. Uh, that's 7.3. That's Let's skip to 7.6. Uh, Jesus answered them and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you? Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Laying aside the commandments of God, you hold to the tradition of men of washing pitchers and cups and many other things such you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you keep your tradition. And then skipping to 13. Making the world of God, word of God no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. Many such things you do. And then he called the multitude to himself and said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from the outside that can defile him, but the things which come out of him are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All right, and then Luke 2, 15 through 20. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. Mary treasured these things up and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had seen, which were just as they had been told. So for this first Sunday in Advent, we've got a bunch of readings about faith. And it's not uh, exactly a new theme for us. It's not a new theme for us in the context of talking about Jesus' identity in the Gospel of Mark, and certainly not, hopefully not a new theme for the church. But one of the biggest things, at least for me, that I've taken from, you know, looking at this idea of Jesus's identity and the uh, messianic secret in the Gospel of Mark 
is this idea that we've talked about a bunch of different ways. So like showing and telling, letting the seed grow, encountering his face. But the kind of basic vision of it to me is that what the Gospel of Mark is talking about is a, a vision of what it looks like to be faithful that is about more than, I don't know, uh, well-formed propositions or wholeheartedly embraced beliefs or even a convincing apologetic, all of which are good things. I'm not arguing against those things. But the vision of faith that I see in the Gospel of Mark, the vision of belief, is a vision of people who encounter Jesus face to face. And really, they kind of get it when they see his face. And sometimes they'll, you know, forget about it or, or, or change or, you know, go back or whatever. But they are transformed by this encounter with the person of Jesus. And in fact, it is only as uh, prior to uh, the word even being effective is, is that encounter with him face to face. They encounter Jesus and they change. That's the thing in Mark's account that makes the real difference. And that's the thing we've been talking about with the messianic secret and the reason for parables and all that stuff is that Jesus talks a lot about belief and about faith, about our theme for today and the gospel of Mark. And, you know, it's one of the most interesting things about it. There's that whole, like, you know, you encounter Jesus, and the question is, do you flee him or do you embrace him? And then uh, there's this thing we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks about um, how Jesus always uh, opposes the idea of belief to the idea of, of fear or amazement. And the basic thing that the Gospel of Mark is trying to get at is something like, how do we really encounter Jesus? And how does that encounter with Jesus producing us the possibility of faith. One of the things that's been most shocking to me in reading the Gospel of Mark is how many times I've done, um, like, work on a word that is translated as amazement. There's like three or four different words in the Gospel of Mark that are translated in most versions as amazement. Wonderment sometimes, uh, sometimes marveling. But the Gospel of Mark is talking fairly consistently about this idea that not only does belief typically stem not from the word, but from an encounter with Jesus, but maybe the Gospel of Mark does this uh, other really interesting thing where the thing it wants to figure out is how to best be amazed by Jesus. And there's like positive amazement and there's negative amazement in the Gospel of Mark. Like the Gospel of Mark is not worried about like whether the propositions that we have about Jesus are warranted or like, can we make a credible argument for belief? That's not the question that Jesus is concerned with in it. That's not the question the gospel is worried about. What it's worried about is something different. What it's worried about is what does it mean for you to be amazed by Jesus? Like it says, you're going to be amazed by Jesus. It takes for granted the power of an encounter with Jesus. And it says there are different ways you can be amazed. You can be amazed in ways that are positive and amazed in ways that are negative. And really, one of the threads that ties together the Gospel of Mark is this idea of figuring out the different ways that people can be amazed by Jesus. I don't know. It, it makes sense to me. Like, instead of trying to say the modern question, how do we figure out the best way to justify our beliefs and what are the most credible propositions to believe in, the kind of thing that sees religious faith as, I don't know, a scientific hypothesis, the Gospel is worried about saying, when you really see Jesus face to face, it's going to produce for you amazement. And the question is, what kind of amazement it produces for you? So I don't know. That's why Mark is so worried. Like the punchline for all this is that's why Mark is so worried about Jesus keeping Jesus's divinity secret. Because one of the reasons why Jesus is keeping it secret, I don't know, how many times have we returned to the metaphor of the seed? 
is Jesus wants to wrap the idea of divinity, of his divinity in that seed. He wants to plant it, and he wants to see it grow. It's the same exact sentiment that we saw at the end of O Little Town of Bethlehem in that beautiful line where it asks for us to, uh, for the, uh, Jesus to, the idea of Jesus to be born in us today. What is it that plants the seed in us? We are amazed by Jesus, and because we are amazed by Jesus, and if we are appropriately amazed by Jesus, then we come to see who it is that Jesus is. That's what the Gospel of Mark does with parables. It's what it does with secrets. It's what it does with all that stuff. One of the ways of thinking about belief this Advent, then, and one of the ways of kind of preparing for Christmas is to say, maybe Advent is about figuring out how we watch that seed grow. Maybe Advent is about figuring out what the proper way to be amazed by it is. Not to necessarily understand it, but to be amazed by it. This whole amazement motif in Mark, I don't know, like the more I thought about it, the more it really got real. And we've got like, today we have like a Mark and sandwich with a little side of Luke. So we've seen people talk about, the Gospel of Mark has talked about these words around amazement a couple of times in our two instances for today. It uses those two words for amazement. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the sandwich uh, made up by Jesus walking on the water and then Jesus asking the Pharisees to hear. We're going to look at those two kinds of amazement and then we're going to look at that third kind of amazement in Luke. Okay, so Jesus walking on the water. Anybody, anybody notice how many times Jesus has been back and forth across the water in Mark? I think, what's that? I think three, but he's, that is, okay, so he goes across, technically you could say he probably goes across twice, but he's also going on and off the water all the time. So it's not just whether he crosses, but also like he's kind of running from the crowd and going on to the water to preach and back on land. That's, that's a good read though. Uh, and so, the, you know, like how many times at Resurrection Church have we had a sermon that talked about water? Like constantly, you know, y'all, like we're what's one of, it, almost as much as mag- agriculture maybe. And like, you know, the water and the gospel and the mark and those kind of crossings back and forth between the different shores, with one of which represented the kind of classic Israel, one of which represented the, the Gentiles. The water is like this conduit in the gospel. It's like a barrier. Uh, and as we've talked about a bunch before at Resurrection Church, it's not just like in the gospel of Mark that Jesus is, I don't know, going around the uh, different kind of elements of the world by crossing uh, the water. But of course, there's all these associations with water and death and water and cleansing and water and chaos. And, you know, you can't have too far in the back of your mind the whole idea that Israel is born and reborn constantly in water crossings. Remember how we talked about that in talking about the Jordan? And so it's, it's, it's pretty tough to miss what Mark is telling us here is Jesus jumps on the water. You know, what, what, is, what is Mark trying to say with Jesus walking on the water? I, I don't know. Jesus sends the disciples out across the water before him, and he prays for a while, and he returns to the shore, and he comes back and sees the guys out there struggling against the wind, and he watches them struggle all night. I don't know, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., he's like, all right, I got to go out there to help him, and I don't know, Jesus walks out on the water. Now, think about what that means in the context of the stuff we've been talking about, about parables becoming real, about wonder and amazement, about all that stuff. We tend to think, at least I as a kid, tended to think of walking on water as kind of like Jesus's magic trick. You know, like you have to be pretty great if you can walk on water. But think about the stuff that's symbolically loaded into it. It's so much more than a magic trick. Like where the disciples are struggling to get back across it, Jesus is effortless in doing it. I don't know. And like he is literally putting water the ancient representative of chaos and necessity under his feet. And like water is symbolically connected to death. So we might sink in it and drown, but Jesus is rising over it. And like the symbolism is so obvious to us that the gospel of Mark seems almost ham handed about it. Like 
Mark basically, it's near troll level at the end of 48. He says, he does all these things where Jesus is walking on the water and crossing the water and invoking all the symbolism about, you know, Jesus carrying Israel, yada, yada, all the things we're talking about. And then at the end of 48, he says, he was about to pass them by. Trey, can you think any examples of the Spirit of God passing by? It's a, it's a big deal. I mean, you know, uh, Exodus thirty three nineteen. 19, uh, Moses has this whole episode. I'm sure Trey could tell us more about it. And uh, at the tent of meeting and, and, the, and the presence of the Lord is, is going to, I says, I'll, I'll cause my spirit to pass in front of you. And then same thing with Elijah in 1 Kings nineteen eleven. Uh, it says, go out and stand in the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. And it's, I don't know, not, a, not exactly a, 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 a mistake that when Mark talks about Jesus being on the water in front of the disciples, he uses exactly the Greek translation of that, uh, of that element of Exodus when he says Jesus is about to pass them by. So here's Mark saying Jesus is putting water, chaos, death under its feet. He's crossing once again. He says he's about to uh, pass by in front of the disciples. And I don't know, like the beauty of this little Mark and sandwich slathered in secret sauce is that the response to all this stuff, the response to this kind of very obvious real metaphor of Jesus walking on the water, uh, you know, uh, rebuilding Israel by crossing again, subjecting death under its feet, the presence of the Lord passing in front of God's people. Like it's really hard to miss all these things from the perspective of the reader. What did the disciples do? They're amazed. But remember how we had that whole thing last time? Like there's good amazement, bad amazement. This is not the good amazement. This is the bad amazement. Spoiler alert. It's, it, there's like two kinds of amazement that could cause us to miss Jesus. Here he is, like, he's out there, he's on the water, and he's, this isn't just like loaded up with symbolism, this is like pregnant with and imbued with and fully constituted by these overwhelming symbolisms, like he's passing by, there's, he's put chaos under his feet, he's demonstrated a sovereignty, yada, 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 and verse 49 says, when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. The word for ghost here is phantasma. It's a Greek word. It means specter or apparition. But the Greeks, like love, they had a lot of categories for ghosts. They had a lot of ghost-like things. And phantasma was a really interesting one because some of their ghost-like things were, they were certain they were real. And then some of their ghost-like things were more like, we don't quite know what that is. We quite don't know how to think about it. And so it's no mistake that that word phantasma is our same word for fantasy, which is like something that someone really, really believes in, but we're not quite certain if it's real. So when they see Jesus on the water, they're not saying like, Jesus is a ghost, like a different kind of presence. They're like, we can't be certain of what we were seeing. We might be hallucinating. It might be a fantasy. It might be a phantasma. And of course, like the disciples all realize that if it is a hallucination, they're seeing it all at the same time. And they're seeing, all seeing something that they're not sure is real. So they get freaked out. And it says, Jesus says to them, he talked with them and said to them, be of good cheer. It is I do not be afraid. Now, this is another classic Mark and troll. Classic. Jesus, of course, you know, does that thing about the relationship between belief and fear again, but it, it is I. You know what that is? That's the Greek translation for what the Old Testament would have called I am that I am. It's the Greek basically for Yahweh. It's the name God reveals to Moses. So here's Jesus walking on the water, saying all these things that invoke these amazing Old Testament motifs. And it says they were greatly, even after Jesus' explanation of it, even after Jesus saying I am that I am, they say they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled for they had not understood about the loaves and their heart was hard. Now, here's the thing. We didn't talk about 
the miracle of the feeding that preceded the crossing, but it too is like chock full of these images of suggesting that Jesus is the one who's going to save and who's going to sustain and who's going to redeem Israel. So the disciples see that. They see the feeding. They see the walking on the water. They hear passing by. They hear Jesus saying, I am that I am. And they are amazed. Now look, the problem here is not that they lack evidence. That's like seven, eight things that are evidence of Jesus's divinity, all wrapped up into one. You know, the problem here is not the problem of faith or belief that says, can we find credible proof that Jesus is on the water? The problem here is that they are amazed. The word there is existanto, and it is not the nicer admiration-oriented amazement. It literally means to be knocked off your feet or to be pushed out of your place. It's the word that Greek-speaking folk would have used for being mad or being like knocked out of your mind. It's like literally being beside yourself, and I don't know, you see what I mean by the idea in Mark that Mark doesn't, in the Gospel of Mark and Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, don't think that the big problem is like, can we prove the fact or can we prove our propositions are certain? The big problem is that people see the reality of God in the world and they think that they must be hallucinating because it just can't be true. It just cannot be the case that this is God embodied. And their, their unbelief is not about them being uncertain. It is about them being afraid. They're afraid that they're mad. They're afraid that what they're, not, what they're seeing is not real. They're afraid that, it, I don't know, it's like too good or too world-changing to be true. It would not help to pick them up and shake them by the shoulders and be like, guys, put all this together. Like, the evidence is all here. And if you tied it all together, it would be very easy for you to build a good concept out of it. It's that they, can't, they are amazed. They cannot literally process the evidence that is in front of their face. They can't encounter it. They can't see it. And that's one of the core reasons, by the way, for the secrets and parables in Mark, isn't it? Like, think about the seed. What is the beauty of the seed? It's that you plant it in the soil and you wait and it grows and it changes you. It's not like it's an immediate miracle. It's that that over time that it comes to change and and make us different so that we can see differently. That's the point of amazement here. The disciples are amazed in a sense that makes it difficult for them to be different and therefore to see differently. It's not a question of the presence or absence of evidence. It's a question of how they think about it. It's a question of being improperly amazed by the presence of Jesus. By the way, that's, the Pharisees are amazed too in that second uh, little piece of Mark for today. The problem is not that they are presented with and unable to process the evidence. If you recall from last week in the sermon on Jesus' hometown and honor, there was that, an amazement word there too that described the amazement of the folks in the synagogue. And the word, that word was not like an amazement like the ghost, like we just can't process it, it's too overwhelming. What was that? It was ekpleso was the word from last week, and that meant something like to be knocked out of your place. But if the first way you can be amazed is you can say, am I crazy for thinking this? The second way you can be amazed is you can kind of be amazed at yourself. Like not be changed by the real presence of Jesus in the world. That's basically what we meant by the idea and thinking about it in terms of of honor. So like the Pharisees are amazed in a different way. Amazement one, the disciples on the boat is uh, tied to thinking it might not be real or it can't be real. Amazement two is tried to be, I don't know, tied to being like so rooted in knowing who you are and where you are that you can't let real amazement regarding Jesus in because it would change things too much. And we see this exactly in Jesus's conversation with the Pharisees in this little piece for today. They're both different kinds of amazement. But I don't know if amazement one is something so good we can't believe it. The disciples can't believe that it's Jesus out on the water saving them. Amazement two is something like we can't accept it because if we did, everything would be messed up. So, you know, 
the way that the gospel sets the second kind of amazement up here is that the Pharisees are all like, you know, this guy's disciples are eating bread with unwashed hands, looking to them defile themselves. Uh, and on the basis of our laws and culture, we'd have to say, uh, you know, these, these guys really can't be a representative of, of, of God, of the, of the kingdom of God. And so there's this little replay of that hypocrisy debate from last week. And Jesus is a little more direct this time. He pulls out that citation from Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me. Teaching his doctrines what are commandments of men. Laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men uh, all too well. You reject the commandment of God so that you may keep your tradition. What a perfect characterization of of that idea of ekplesso being knocked out of your place. The Pharisees have basically in the name of, I don't know, preserving their culture, preserving their traditions, preserving who they are, being amazed with themselves. They have missed the direct presence of God incarnate. Now, For the first time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, after this this interaction with the Pharisees, calls the crowd to themselves and says directly, Hear me and understand. There is nothing that uh, enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. And he said this before, but if anyone has ears, let, let let him hear. So he calls the people to himself and he looks at the crowd and he says, you know, the beautiful thing here is he says, hear me and understand. The word for understand is uh, tsunami, and it means something like synthesize it or put the pieces together. So the first time Jesus looks at the crowd, this is an important point in the Gospel of Mark, and he says, look at the fact that people are not putting the evidence together in the right way. It's not that the evidence is not there. It's that their amazement causes them to not put the evidence together in a way that allows them to see who Jesus is. So in the first case, the disciples are amazed they don't see who Jesus is because it seems like they don't know if, uh, I don't know, they can believe it. And in the second case, the Pharisees, they don't see who Jesus is because to accept the reality of Jesus would so radically change who they are, or how they interacted with the world. The problem in the Gospel of Mark and the reason why Jesus is constantly repeating this deal of having ears to hear is not a lack of information. The problem is not a lack of evidence. The problem is the stories and the experiences that tie it together. The problem is that people are, their amazement gets in the way of seeing how those things are integrating. Their amazement gets in the way of being understand, of understanding. That's why I think Jesus talks so much about wondering at the marvel of the seed and accepting the grow, uh, that, that it grows in us. We, we can't work to, I don't know, uh, like uh, encounter our fear on our own, but Jesus wants us to say, look at the seed and watch it and watch how beautiful it is. It's not that it grows in you by an act of your will. It's that you, you ought to be amazed by the fact that it's growing in you and transforming you. That's why Mark loves parables and secrets. They're an antidote to amazements one and two. They don't immediately transform you, but they kind of hit you and they grow in you. And I don't know, I like did a bunch of nerdy work on the biology of a seed, but like the messianic secret is kind of like the wrapping on the seed. It allows the soil to accept it. And then it grows. It breaks out of that wrapping and all of a sudden, like, I don't know, a lamp put under a mat or any of the other metaphors that we use or invasive weeds or all those things, it starts to grow on its own. And the reason why Mark is constantly referring to this concept of the secret and of the seed is that the idea is that he wants to wrap the divinity of Jesus in that seed or in that secret to allow the soil to accept it and be transformed by it. They're the truth of God's divinity wrapped in a secret. The idea of the seed and the secret, the literal metaphor, is the inexpressibly beautiful thing about the Gospel of Mark. 
But let me tell you the inexpressibly beautiful thing about the Gospel of Luke. If you would want to reveal the divinity of Jesus Christ, you don't need to wrap it in a secret. You don't need to wrap it in a seed. Because where Mark wraps up divinity in the secret seed, Luke wraps divinity in swaddling clothes and puts it in a manger. When the angels had left and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurry off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning him and all that had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had told them and Mary treasured and pondered these things. They were amazed by the baby. They were amazed by the words about the baby. They were amazed by the fulfillment of prophecy. This is amazement three. The word here is thamazo, and it means to be struck out of your senses, but it means to be struck out of your senses in an admiring way, in a way that transforms you. It means something like to wonder at, and it implies both the sense of admiration and the sense of beginning to change your mind. And the inexpressibly beautiful part here is it comes from a Greek word, theomai, which means I see personally and I am moved by something. It's the word that the Greeks would have used for having witnessed a great event and having been changed by it. And that is the point of the faith of Advent. Not to convince us to try awfully hard or believe in spite of the evidence, or God forbid if you've started watching Christmas specials yet, that God, like Santa or Tinkerbell or the Christmas spirit, only exists if you really, really, really believe in it. The faith of Advent, then, is not about our efforts to come to understand or believe. Instead, the faith of Advent is about us coming to be amazed by his presence in the world. Because when we try and make it about our concepts, it either ends up in amazement two or one. It can amend up in amazement too because, I don't know, we have a doctrine about God that makes sense for us and for who we are. Or it can become amazement one because we say, I believe this because, I don't know, it makes the world seem nicer, but I don't know if I can really throw myself into it. But amazement three, the amazement that is wrapped in the incarnation of God in a teeny baby is a different kind of amazement. The point of the belief and the faith of Advent is to be amazed by, to presume the truth of, and to engage and to encounter and to pursue and to believe in the idea that the eternal, immortal, all-powerful, unconditionally loving, all-knowing, and frankly, despite the obvious risk of trivialization here, amazing God of all creation has been wrapped in the finite form of a tiny baby. And we could say that it's a fantasy and not a reality, or we can say that it's something that we'd like for cultural or traditional reasons, or we can say, you know what, it's actually real, that God has actually come in flesh, and holy cow, we'd have to live differently. We'd have to live like Jesus was more than just a source of security or certainty or, I don't know, uh, metaphysical risk insurance. We'd have to live like it was a challenge propelling us in the world to change it. And that is the point of faith. That is the point of belief. It's the point of the first Sunday of Advent. It's the point of the gospel. It is the point of wrapping an amazing God in flesh that God is with us. It's a kind of amazement that answers the problem of amazement one. It's not just a fantasy. We have to actually believe and act as if it is real because we are amazed by it and respond to it. And it answers the problem of amazement two of the self-certainty of so many of our friends whose doctrine has become more important than the growth of the seed, whose doctrine has become more important than wondering at its growth, whose propositions or principles have become more important than the idea that what comes out of a man and what defiles a man is not what goes into them, but rather what stems 
stems from him and the importance of the seed is what grows from it. It answers all those questions by saying that we put our faith in a God who, despite the fact that that God embodies all those qualities, begins in the most finite and in the most vulnerable and in the most difficult of places and that the seed that is Jesus grows, dies again and resurrects and redeems the universe. Be amazed. Be amazed and therefore die to yourself so that the incarnate God might live in us. Amen.